People pick up different elements from different things. Lots of different elements appeal to lots of different people. From Scottish rock music on the Isle of Skye to sardine fishing down in Penzance via Spanish sportsman Superstition and Simon Williams, from smuggling to a wartime love story, we cover all bases in this, the November edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine. I'm Patrick Tansy, and with me in the studio today are Jenny, Hello. Sue, Hello. and Jim. Hello. Now, is cheese making a science or an art? Daniel Tapper has been sniffing around an artisan creamery in rural Hampshire, as he writes in a recent Waitrose magazine. Jim. There comes a time for many of us when we begin to reflect on our age. Some fork out on sports cars, adopt a new look, or join the gym. And others, like Stacey Hedges, get in their Volvo, hit the M40 and drive to Oxford to purchase a pair of goats. In 2003, the then 41-year-old had spent the previous decade raising three children in rural Hampshire, when she began reading about the art of cheesemaking. I wanted to try it for myself and needed a ready supply of milk, she says. Goats seemed like a good choice, as I knew they'd fit in the garden not to mention the boot of the car. Let's just say I got more than a few peculiar looks when I was returning down the motorway. Though she didn't know it then, Stacy's midlife punt would eventually pay off. Fifteen years later, and her once homebrew-sized project had become one of Britain's most respected creameries. Her two flagship cheeses, meanwhile, have accrued many of the industry's most sought-after awards, not to mention high plays from a plethora of notable chefs. I briefly worked as a cheesemaker in my native Sydney before becoming a full-time chef in London, so I intuitively knew about flavour, but back then I didn't know anything about actual cheesemaking, she says. All that changed when I met a consultant at the British Cheese Award called Val Bins who is basically the goddess of cheese in the UK. Amazingly, it turned out that Val lived nearby and she agreed to come and visit me at home to show me the ropes. I've never forgotten that first meeting. She took one look at the goats, the children and the messy kitchen and said, I think you're completely mad, but let's do this. Noticing a gap in the market for a British Camembert-style cheese, Stacy spent the next two years developing recipes using cow's milk from a local farmer, far easier than milking a goat every morning, before she plucked up courage to take a sample to the acclaimed London cheesemonger Neil's Yard Dairy. We did a tasting alongside ten other soft cheeses and it quickly transpired that I needed to up my game. I left that day with my tail between my legs, she admitted. Undeterred, however, she forges ahead with setting up her own business with the help of local cheesemaker Charlotte Spruce. Soon afterwards, the pair settled on a recipe for a cheese they named Tunworth in honour of a nearby hamlet. Nobody was prepared for what happened next, says Stacey. In 2006, which was just a year after we opened, our cheese was crowned supreme champion at the British Cheese Awards and we were suddenly inundated with orders. We could only make about 300 cheeses per week, so we were totally overwhelmed. 
Since then, the pair have relocated their creamery to the Herriard estate, an area of northern Hampshire surrounded by several thousand acres of farms and woodlands. They can produce around a thousand rounds per day, many of which are sent to Waitrose, which is the only UK supermarket to sell it. Meanwhile, the buzz surrounded Tunworth has continued to grow. In 2013, it was named Supreme Champion again, prompting Raymond Blanc to declare it the best camembert in the world. It can now be found on the menus of many of the country's most respected restaurants, from Simon Rogan's La Clume to Heston Blumenthal's Dinner. We're particularly proud of Raymond's quote, says Stacey, but I do disagree with him on one point. Tunworth is not camembert. Our cheese is made from whole milk instead of semi-skimmed, making it extra creamy with an almost fudge-like texture. Plus, we use local milk sourced from a herd of grass-fed cows located just five miles away. The result is a cheese with a distinctive earthy mushroom-like aroma and a long-lasting, sweet, nutty flavour. It's unique. Most recently, the Creamery has released a second flagship cheese called Winslade. It's inspired by a cheese variety hailing from the mountainous regions of Jura in eastern France. Like Tonworth, Winslade is made from milk from a nearby farm that is then pasteurised and fed with a signature cocktail of yeasts, moulds and bacteria. If I told you the exact recipe, I'd have to kill you, laughed Stacey. Next, the milk is transferred into a series of 200-litre troughs where animal rennet is added, encouraging it to coagulate. The resulting curd is then sliced and stirred by hand before being put into round moulds and left to age. Unlike Tunworth, the cheese is belted with a length of aromatic spruce, imbuing the sweet, milky curd with its sap-rich fragrance. A week later and the resulting cheese is not only noticeably more piney than its close sibling, Tunworth, but also far gooier, think Cornish clotted cream. With an intensely savoury flavour, redolent of rosemary, smoky bacon and inevitably Christmas trees. The best time to enjoy Tunworth is when it's around eight or nine weeks old or as close to its use-by date as possible, advises Stacey. Winslade, however, can be eaten a little sooner. My kids love it baked whole with honey and thyme, but I prefer to eat it at room temperature. Spoon into a piece of crusty bread and preferably paired with a glass of cider or English sparkling wine. Stacey's children aren't the only ones impressed with Winslade. Earlier this year, it won gold in the soft cheese category at the Artisan Cheese Awards. And as word catches on, demand is growing. Would I want to live my life differently, says Stacey? Absolutely not. This is what real cheesemaking is all about. Uh, some years ago, just on about cheese, I was in uh, the Netherlands and went on a tour of a cheesemaking um, farm there. And the woman was taking us around. I think it was goat's uh, cheese they used. And she said it's used in a lady's cosmetic, facial cosmetic uh, uh, applications. And she said, that's why if you go around Holland, you see all the goats have beautiful complexions. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're talking about food just then. And uh, this is a story from Sue about the wartime canteen 
at Worcester's Mining Engineering Company, which I believe the original company was on the Bromyard Road. It's still an engineering company, but not the Worcester Mining Engineering Company. And uh, it was given an unwanted extra blast of energy in 1940, as Mike Price writes in the Worcester News. Sue. Considering Worcester's entire anti-aircraft defences consisted of three lone Bren guns, one each on the top of the cathedral, Whittington Tump and the keep of Norton Barracks, the pilot of the German plane that swooped low over the city and dropped two bombs on the Miko factory on October the 3rd, 1940, killing seven people and injuring more than 60, would have fancied his chances of getting away unscathed. It would not be impossible to shoot down a flying aircraft with a Bren gun, said Battle of Britain expert Dilip Sarka, but the pilot would have to be very, very unlucky. This one wasn't. Records appear to indicate that he returned safely to his base, which was most likely Orly, near Paris. The Miko raid is back in the news again because moves are afoot to erect a memorial in Sanctuary Park, St John's, to those killed that day. In fact, there has long been a memorial plaque to the seven who lost their lives. It was in the former Miko factory in Bromyard Road and then retained when spin-off company Joy Mining took over the complex. Today, it's in the entrance hall to the design offices of American mining equipment giant Komatsu, the site's latest owners. As well as the plaque on display in the building during the Miko era was the nose cone of one of the bombs, which was found sometime later during excavations. For many years, the attack was considered a random raid by a German pilot looking to unload remaining bombs before returning across the channel. However, Dilip Sarka considers this highly unlikely, and the available evidence presents an alternative and more likely thesis, that this was a well-executed raid on a specific target. He explained... The event took place during the Battle of Britain's final phase. Such bombing was clearly not preparatory to an invasion, Hitler having already postponed such plans indefinitely on September the 19th, but was considered an investment by the enemy, showing growing damage to both industrial and domestic property. These attacks by lone bombers were called Sturflug, harassing attacks, and were actually flown throughout the Battle of Britain by twin-engined Junkers 88s, relying upon speed and cloud to reach and withdraw from their targets undetected. In fact, the Miko raid was a very skillful piece of flying. Before the war, Miko produced equipment for the mining industry, but in 1940 was subcontracted to the Air Ministry to produce surge drums for barrage balloons. Precautions against air attacks were taken jointly with Worcester Corporation, including the construction of shelters and provision for an auxiliary fire station and a direct landline to the Guild Hall. At a cost of £800, the factory had also been camouflaged. 
Miko was, therefore, producing an item connected with air defence, so was consistent with Luftwaffe target selection during the Battle of Britain's final phase. Although Worcester's principal industries concerned porcelain, light engineering and clothing manufacture, the city had been scrutinised by German reconnaissance aircraft. Indeed, the Imperial War Museum holds copies of surviving Luftwaffe target photographs, which show the Worcestershire Regiment headquarters at Norton, petrol storage tanks at Diglis, government buildings at Whittington and the airfield at Purdiswell. The fact that the War Museum's target photographs do not include Miko does not mean that the enemy was unaware of it. Indeed, the provision of air raid precautions and camouflage was noticed and marked the factory as being worthy of further scrutiny. Dilip added, at 0700 hours on Thursday the 3rd of October 1940, the Meteorological Office recorded that at Birmingham there was a light north-northeast wind and a layer of stratus cloud at 5,700 feet the weather generally being dull, rainy and rather cold. As the day wore on, the cloud base descended to just 500 feet and was a complete covering. Even out of it, visibility was down to just 500 yards. This foul weather was perfect for Sturflug incursions. The Daily Home Security Report indicates from midday onwards a fairly continuous stream of lone raiders began crossing the coast, heading for targets around London or in the Midlands. Fighter Command sent up patrols to intercept them, but because of the bad weather was unable to find any. Eyewitness evidence confirms the lone enemy aircraft that bombed Worcester circled the city several times before attacking the Miko factory, suggesting therefore that this was no random attack, but one against a pre-selected target. The report on war damage to factories notes that the Miko's canteen was demolished. Seven men were killed three were seriously injured and 60 suffered minor wounds. Had the attack occurred a few minutes later when the workforce was clocking out for lunch and therefore concentrated in the damaged area, the death toll would have been far greater. Production was halted for five days and many adjacent houses were damaged. By any standards, therefore, the attack was successful especially given the prevalent weather conditions dictating that the enemy pilot had to fly entirely to and from his target using instruments without visual reference to landmarks. Care was also taken to positively identify the target. If the attack was random, having emerged from cloud over Worcester, the enemy pilot would have simply dropped his bombs immediately. He also strafed various areas of the city with his machine guns before leaving to cause further panic. Among several eyewitness accounts Dilip collected during his research, one of the most vivid came from Leslie Adams, who was actually working in the Miko's riveting shop at the time. 
someone shouted, Jerry gone over. But we all laughed, thinking it was a leg pull. He said, it's true, I've seen the crosses. We all went out and from the gloom came this aircraft. And true enough, there was a big black cross. I shouted, God's truth and ran. The bomb went through the roof of the assembly shop, bounced through a brick wall and exploded adjacent to Miko Lane and near houses in Happy Land West. There was another which skidded and hit some houses. The bomber then opened fire at the factory as it flew on towards Lockhearn Brook. It was the day World War Two came to Worcester. Exactly 25 years to the month after the Miko blast, Hindlip Hall, the technology-bristling headquarters of West Mercia Police, which is situated between Worcester and Droitwich, also suffered an almost equally catastrophic fire. Mike Price is the writer, and Jenny's going to tell us all about it. Hindlip Hall wasn't the original name of the property on the site. That was Hindlip House, which was built in the second half of the 1500s by John Habington. This magnificent Elizabethan country mansion was described as the most famous house in England for the entertainment of priests. However, entertainment was code for the property being a safe haven for harbouring fugitive Catholic priests called treacherous popish trash by the authorities and had nothing to do with drinking or dancing or any other non-priestly activities. Between 1590 and 1606, its most renowned period, Hindlip House had as many as 11 priest holes, ingenious secret corners where priests could be concealed from their pursuers for days or weeks on end. A reed through a hole in a chimney or an outer wall was often their sole source of ventilation and there was a concealed tube so that they could be fed broths and warm drinks. Hindlip House was eventually pulled down in 1814 to make way for Hindlip Hall, which became the heart of the 1,600-acre estate of the Hindlip family. The hall was bought by Worcestershire County Council just after the Second World War, to use as the headquarters of Worcestershire Constabulary, as it needed to relocate from its cramped base in Castle Street, Worcester. In the autumn of 1965, the whole lot nearly burnt down. On October the 18th that year, a fire broke out in the roof of what was then the headquarters of Worcester Constabulary, and it was all hands to the pump, literally. More than 50 firefighters battled to prevent the flames breaking down into the top floor of the historic building, which would almost certainly have led to its destruction, while police and civilian staff, with Chief Constable Sir John Wilson to the fore, combined to rescue as many files and records as possible. Remember those were the days when everything was on paper. Worcestershire's Chief Fire Officer Gerald Eastham said later, Those of us who were under the roof for one and three-quarter hours facing the problem of two large water tanks likely to come crashing down were determined not to abandon the top floor because we knew the fire would spread at second floor level and go throughout the building. 
The eventual cost of the fire was around £50,000, more than £1 million today. But through some astute accounting, the rebuilding figure included alterations to the hall needed to cater for its impending role as the centre of the newly created West Mercia police force due to take over the patch in 1967. Well, at least they didn't lose the canteen. Spanish tennis star Rafa Nadal must be on a very special diet, probably to do with his tennis training, since, as pointed out in the Telegraph magazine, he is known for his slightly unusual habit of tasting his various sporting trophies. Jim. My habit of biting trophies started a long time ago as a joke. I did it once, and from then on, the photographers always asked me to repeat it, even though the trophies don't taste very good. My 10th French Open title tasted better than most. Before, the organisers always gave me a miniature version of this trophy to take home. After this one, they gave me a full-size model, which is displayed with my clothes from the tournament in the museum in Manacor, my hometown on the island of Mallorca. It was a special moment for me because I'd been stuck on nine French Opens for a couple of years. In 2015, I was playing badly. In 2016, I was much better, but then I had to pull out because I injured my wrist. So by the time the tournament began in 2017, I felt like the fans at Roland Garros really wanted me to make it to number 10. La décima in Spanish. The same phrase that my favourite football team, Real Madrid, used when they won their 10th Championship League title in 2014. I think for the tournament itself, to have someone who has won 10 times is something special. And for me personally, at the most important time in my career, to feel that much love from everyone has been unforgettable. I have had so much success in the French Open that some people think, OK, it's Roland Garros, Rafa will win. I understand why. That is the way people see things from the outside. From the inside, it is completely different perspective. I've never felt like that, like I was just going to walk up and win the title because I have had injuries all my career. In 2017, I had the same team as I've had all my life with my coaches Francis and my uncle Tony Nadal. We always worked unbelievably well together, but we were joined by Carlos Moya, the former world number one who also grew up on Mallorca. So there were some new ideas and something different to listen to. I played a fantastic event. In terms of being confident that I was going to win, I think the only year that I've had a better feeling was in 2008 when I beat Roger Federer in the final. This time, in 2017, I beat Nicholas Basil-Ashvili, who is a very good player. 6-love, six 6-1, six six love in the third round. I played unbelievably that day, but I prefer the more competitive victories because the pride you feel is greater when you have to fight through a crisis. In the final, I beat Stan Wawrinka, a player who had already had amazing victories in Melbourne, Paris and New York. You know it is a tough one. I remember going on court feeling nervous and having high respect for him, but I really felt myself playing well. I hit one forehand, which everyone asked me about, down the line at a full run. I arrived late and just hit it with the wrist, and the ball went to the right place. People say that it must be my favourite shot from the final, 
But I say, no, I prefer the kind of forehand where I know where the ball is going to go. Afterwards, you spend time with family and friends. You have dinner and you go to the disco, but you are super tired. After two weeks of nerves, pressure and tension, the body goes down a little bit. You don't have a moment to pause and think, OK, I really did it. The celebrations are better later, when you finally arrive back home. Rafa Nadal is not the only one to feel nervous before walking out in front of spectators when he's unsure of the outcome. Simon Williams admits, also in the Telegraph, to being terrified on a first night. Jenny. On the night before I open in a play, I treat myself to a sleeping pill. On the packet, it warns me not to use heavy machinery, a bonus for me as I'm not allowed near any of our domestic machines. The episode with the blender and my beetroot smoothie was the final straw. Before I'm fully awake, I feel nauseous. Either I'm pregnant or it's a first night. Then I remember I'm 72, so it must be the latter. In a recurring dream, my lines have flown the coop. I am speechless, centre stage, and a pointy-faced man, more frightening than the child catcher, shouts from the stalls, You're rubbish, mate, get off! All over London, bloodthirsty people will have booked to watch me vaporise on stage that evening. Critics now scoffing, pano raison, and sharpening their pencils will be there disguised as humans. As we take our bows, they'll scamper out of the theatre like dogs to bury a bone. The day is taken up with rituals. You're on death row, so you tell your wife all your pin numbers and make peace with a few old enemies. The script becomes your Linus blanket. It's balanced on the edge of the bath or next to the kettle. Walking the dog, you mutter your first funny line to him, not a titter. You can't find the nasal hair trimmer. You gargle frequently, you floss and refloss, you intone, me, 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 to the mirror. It's both a voice, exercise, and a mission statement. Your heart thumps with caffeine and fear. You write good luck cards stuffed with hyperbole. You're utterly, totally sublime, darling. The most comforting message I ever had came from the actor Marcia Warren. Remember, Simon, there are over a billion people in China who probably have no idea you're opening in a play. On the way to the theatre, my superstitions kick in. I'm accumulating thousands over the years, like odd socks or loyalty cards. There'll be a magpie, a piebald horse, a nun on a pogo stick, all omens of disaster. Outside the theatre, there'll be a ghastly picture of me, Note to self, don't do the quizzical smile. After 25 years of not smoking, you'll kill for a cigarette. The audience will be grumpy, having had to park in the rain and pay £1,000 for a plastic glass of warm Sauvignon. In the wings, your hands are shaking, your mouth is dry. You need a brandy, a Valium, a nappy, a ticket to Kathmandu. You wish you were a shepherd or a monk. You check your flies for the tenth time. You're on the cliff edge. Your cue comes. You jump. Did you see him at the Regal? I did. And, and he talked to me. Did he? Yes. <laughs> Name dropper. <laughs> mm. 
I shall have to send Simon a copy of an article I was shown in Woman and Home magazine recently, talking about fears. Dr. Mark Winwood, Director of Psychological Services for AXA PPP Healthcare, has some advice to offer to help conquer common phobias or irrational or extreme fears. Now, I wouldn't say that having nerves before going out on stage is in any way irrational, but it's certainly common, as are many phobias. A report by YouGov found that 55% of Brits have a phobia, with 48% of us avoiding certain situations because of it. According to Benson's, the bed retailer, 64% of British adults admit that they are scared of the dark. Dr. Winwood says that we're born with only two fears, the fear of falling and loud noises. All others are learned. And known as learned response, phobias are often caused by a shocking or traumatic event, which has developed into an aversion to anything associated with that memory. For some people, the origins of why we are phobic is less clear, says psychotherapist Toby Ingram. We don't remember the particular experience. All we know is that we may have been left with the residual fear or phobia. However it started, it's important to remember that fear is a natural response to a threat to survival. It's there to protect us. If we can think about our fears differently... We can see them as a positive, motivating force, says Dr. Winwood. The first step is identifying what our fears are and the function of them. The more we can understand them, we can stop them from limiting us. We can then stop our fears disabling us and feel empowered. Here is how. Driving anxiety can start gradually, after an accident or a near miss or can be linked to a fear in your own ability to take control. If you're also menopausal, fluctuating hormones could be to blame. If you were a rather anxious driver before, the physical and cognitive symptoms of the menopause could make driving feel even more scary, says psychologist on behalf of HealthSpan, Dr. Meg Arrow. Cure Start with small trips or try difficult journeys with a friend first. It's important to discover what it is about driving that actually creates the fear, says Linda Cordwell from Chrysalis Courses, UK. When driving is criticised by others, often partners, it destroys confidence. This is an issue that can be explored in therapy. Something happened to me recently. I was driving along and I stopped at a set of traffic lights on red and a car pulled in alongside of me and uh, he was a boy racer. Uh, I knew that because he had a tattoo on his left arm which said boy racer. And just as I happened to, out of curiosity, glance at him, he happened to coincidentally turn and look at me. Our eyes met and neither of us, neither of us would blink. And I felt hostility growing between us. And then I saw a smile and said, and I relaxed then because I, and then, no, it wasn't a smile, it was a sneer. And he had gone through and evaluated me and dismissed me, I think, as being a no threat to him. 
because my age group would be, I'm probably older than most people listening to this recording. That'll give you an idea. Okay. So he thought he'd have a bit of fun at my expense, and he challenged me to a car racing duel. He looked pointily up at the red lights, looked across at me again, and then revved his engine. I'm driving a car that the engine was Formula One race tested. This man is driving me a car, the model of which had recently been voted Car of the Year by the Association of Car Repairers. <laughs> I revved my engine. And I could see him stiffen. He didn't like the sound of this at all. He revved again. I revved mine. And suddenly the lights turned green. He tore off and burned rubber for 350 yards. And I turned left. If you have a phobia for water, you'd best stay away from the South Key area of the city, as Mike Price explains in the Worcester News. Sue. In the height of summer, the fountains on Worcester's South Key are a popular place to gather, especially if you're not very old and love to get very wet and have a handy adult around to dry you off afterwards. But in centuries gone by, the area was a popular place to gather for those with rather more trouble in mind. Cue the arrival of the smugglers. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, the Severn was one of the world's great highways. In fact, it was said to carry the greatest traffic of any river in the world. As a result, Worcester became a busy inland port and it was not unusual to see well over a hundred sailing vessels tied up waiting for a fresh to get them over the shallows or a fall to get them under the bridge. The district between the city centre and the river soon sprawled into a mix of decent houses, squalid tenements, pubs and warehouses which spread in an unhealthy muddle right down to the quayside. It was a maze of narrow alleys and courts with numerous watermen's inns, some dingy and of doubtful repute, which were frequented by boatmen and their women. By day, it was a busy, evil-smelling warren, and though the inns came alive at night, the alleyways were dark and dangerous places for strangers. Taking advantage of all this were the smugglers who found Worcester a happy hunting ground for many years. They created a huge underground cave just off Copenhagen Street, roughly where the college building stands today, to store their contraband and a whole series of tunnels to distribute the goods across the city. Indeed, it was said that goods smuggled in at night could reach the shops in High Street by the morning without ever coming above ground. But with the arrival of the railways, the importance of the river as a goods highway declined considerably and the quays no longer bustled. Over the years, the properties deteriorated and began to be demolished. Between 1910 and 1940, the whole area was pretty much wiped from the city scene. 
Copenhagen Street, as it was at the height of the river traffic, virtually disappeared and today exists in name only. From the 1960s onwards, Worcester was keen to revitalise its riverside in an effort to latch on to the growing boom in tourism. But efforts were always frustrated by a lack of cash. To mark the millennium, there was a grand project to create a riverfront with the water drawn in to form a glass-covered pool. But that eventually sank without a trace, as did another with panoramic views of the riverside from a series of balconies. Eventually, it was decided to settle for the multi-jet Keyhead Fountain, which was opened by local businessman and benefactor Cecil Duckworth in December 2001, plus a major cosmetic revamp of the river area. The white foaming jets will reach 2.5 metres in height, said a press release at the time, which would no doubt have had the Naldo smugglers, who had just made their way up from Gloucester at dead of night, right impressed. Or maybe not. That was Mike Price in the Worcester News looking at the re-clothing of the South Quay area. And speaking of clothing, the fashion designer Paul Smith has been reminiscing about how he started in that industry, Jim. In 1966, I was working in a boutique in Nottingham. I'd left school at 15 and got a job as a gopher in a warehouse. I was also a racing cyclist. That was my passion. But when I was 17, I was involved in a crash and in hospital for almost six months. Broken femur, collarbone, kneecap and a few ribs. When I came out of hospital, I started going to a pub called the Bell Inn, where all the art students used to go. They were into architecture, graphic design, fashion. And I thought, this sounds a pretty cool world. Then I got a job working as a shop assistant for a friend whose father had set her up in a boutique called The Birdcage. The Birdcage was a woman's clothes shop, but we opened the upper floor and started selling men's clothes. I'd go down to London to buy stock, mostly in the East End, where you'd find somebody selling shirts and someone else trousers, and just built up a little supply chain that way. One of the big hits we had was when I discovered Ben Sherman shirts. At that point, it was still owned by a man called Ben Sugarman. His factory was in Brighton, and I'd drive down to buy as many shirts as I could. They were really popular. It was a very mod look. We were pioneers in selling them outside London. In those days, the average man really didn't think about fashion. It was just clothes. So wearing Basswegian shoes or a Ben Sherman shirt was a way of people expressing themselves, of saying, I'm cool, because these things were hard to find. Today it's got completely the other way. There is an oversupply of clothes and brands. In 1967, I met Pauline, who became my girlfriend and then my wife. She'd studied at the Royal College of Art and was teaching fashion at the Nottingham College of Art. In 1970, we opened a little shop with very little money, two days a week. To begin with, Pauline made some of the clothes and I learned from her how to make them myself. The shop was originally called Vetement pour Homme, 
we changed it pretty quickly. The only reason for changing it to Paul Smith was that a lot of people knew me from the birdcage. That shop became like an oasis. People used to travel from Leicester, Sheffield, Manchester and even Glasgow. We opened our first shop in London in 1979 and didn't look back. Now we employ 1,800 people selling 73 countries and we're an independent company. I'm still part of the design team and in this world that's gone a bit bonkers, that's rather nice. Coming up, we have an evacuee's love story, a Melissa Kite rant, a short quiz from John Plush, and a shocking piece about punishment in 19th century Worcester. But first, this. When you're confronted by two strapping Scotsmen, you might think that to call them fairies to their face could be, shall we say, ill-advised. But Peter Morrison and Innes Hutton, the two strapping Scotsmen I found sitting opposite me at Huntington Hall, actually call themselves fairies. My first question had to be, why? We were actually named. We didn't choose the name. We were given the name. It was an, an old lady in Isle of Lewis that gave us that name many years ago. Mary Ann. She was from the village of Laxey. And uh, we helped her do, the, do her peats, helped her family do the peats. And in return, they were feeding us and whatnot. And, uh, and she gave us the name She and the Mona, which is uh, Fairies of the Moor. But translated it's, uh, we translated it back to Peatbog Fairies. How did the band start, Peter? Well, it was basically uh, kind of two trios that were working away in Sky. Myself and the original guitar player and a singer called Davy Tate. We were doing sort of wee things together. And Innes was playing with uh, the original fiddler, who was Alan Edmonds, and another piper. Jonathan MacDonald at the time and uh, Ali the guitarist with us knew Innes quite well I didn't know Innes at the time and Ali suggested that he knew this other lad and and at that stage we were doing kind of um, almost we wouldn't call it Cayley music but it was certainly more traditional with some songs some traditional Scottish and Irish songs and we really developed the people phase when we, we started playing a couple of tunes of mine which we still play Folk Police and uh, Caber Drone and uh, another one called Hammy Ski, a Gaelic one. And these particular three tracks in particular, we played them with a bit more uh, of a modern edge, and that seemed to catch people's attention. Uh, And from there, we just gradually introduced more and more of that type of music. We were basically playing what our audiences were reacting best to. And round about 93, we started morphing into what is better known now as the Peat Bogs. And we got a keyboard player, drummer, and, we, you know, that was, the, that was the real foundation of the Peat Bogs. Mm-hmm. 91 to 93 was much more a, a traditional pub kind of band, yeah, you know. So uh, 93 is when what people would know us now as would become recognisable. The band's appeal seems to extend way beyond the Scotland. Why is that? How does that work? Uh, maybe because, well, Peter writes his own melodies, so they're maybe slightly more accessible than a lot of uh, more traditional melodies. And uh, and the backing, 
reminds people of different genres of music. Uh, we don't set out to do any particular genres. We try and suit the tune as best we can. But other people go, oh, that sounds African, that sounds this, that sounds that. So people pick up elements, different elements from different things. So I think lots of different elements appeal to lots of different people. So Essentially, you know, it's dance music, essentially. Yeah, you know, so and that, that's... Um, worldwide uh, understood kind of thing you know people like to get up and dance all around the world uh, you know we're not really a folk band as such i wouldn't say we're we're more of a dance band yeah. we're probably more reminiscent of what you'd hear at a club rather than what you'd hear at a folk club mm-hmm. although you know we uh, i love folk music we all, we all do myself and ross especially from you know pretty strong folk traditions but that's not the f- path we've ever followed with this band it, it, it is for dancing and you know, getting people moving. There's um, a history of um, classical composers like Rayford Williams, Percy Granger, going out to collect mm. folk tunes, and of course, then they'd arrange them into their own contemporary style. Do you feel yourselves to be a part of that tradition? Well, with this band, we haven't collected the tunes, but we've collected the style over the years. You know, the connection with the d- tradition would probably come through me and Ross because we do know the traditions really well, mm-hmm. and our tunes are a you know, they're influenced by our upbringing. But what we brought, they were own taking it uh, on, these, on these tunes. So it's all original melodies. One would expect um, folk songs to involve a voice. But uh, the, the bulk of your repertoire seems to be instrumental, so it's not quite that. Yeah, we've... We've always felt other people were doing that, and um, we've we have recently done one-off shows with uh, a vocalist, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, but it's not something that we've concentrated on because we just felt we wanted to play our own furrow. So, also, if you look at you know, if you go to any sort of club where there's a DJ playing, for example, there's very little vocals involved in that either. Vocals are a special type of thing where people can focus in on the words, the meaning of things. You know, a song is a, is a different type of music, you know, it's almost like the difference between a book and a poem. People identify with them in a different way. And when we're playing music, it's mainly for people to dance. And we did a great thing with Ruth and Katuri at Celtic Connections, which we thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, um, great fun for us, you know. He's rooted in uh, vocal dance music as well, and folk music from, from Mali. It's also the language thing as well. It's, we almost felt it would be a bit too clichéd for us to have a Gaelic singer. And then we thought, well, singing in English doesn't really suit us either. Mm-hmm. So that's why we really enjoyed it, having Vieux Fakaturi, because he's, he's from Mali and sang in his own language. So it kind of made it something else. The band's lineup has remained pretty constant over the years. Um, but you have used brass and and woodwind. Um, how much further down the orchestral route are you likely to go? <laughs> Strings? <sighs> Who knows? We have, we've had we actually played with the BBC Symphony Orchestra in the past. Uh, we've done we did uh, proms in the park, so we d- we arranged a whole piece with them. Um, so we have done stuff like that in the past, but yeah, we never say no to anything. I mean, just you know, see what comes up, and mm-hmm. you know, if someone's willing to back a collaboration of some sort, then we're up for it. You know, or, or a, if a particular track is going down a, 
or an album, say, is going down a particular road, then we wouldn't be averse to getting somebody in, yeah, sure. you know, to, to fill that space. Yeah. We, we, for all we know, we might, we might do more with, with the brass in the future, we don't know. Yeah. We, we did two and a half albums, basically, with the brass. We've kind of felt that we'd created a sound with the brass, and to move on, it felt like we needed to go back to our roots. Well, the instrumental band, I think, especially, has to keep moving. We've had changes of subtle changes of membership. It's always meant it's been slightly fresh, a new fiddler here, new guitarist there, new keyboard, whatever. Uh, me and this have been in it from the start. We've, we've always been in it, and maybe we could be doing being replaced, I don't know. But yeah, it's a bit of time, <laughs> isn't it? It's a bit of time. But, um, but aye, we're not adverse to anything. Anyway, this is the original lineup tonight, or almost the original, certainly long standing lineup yeah. tonight. Peter Morrison and Innes Hutton, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much. John Plus talking to a pair of Scotsmen who are indeed dangerous, but only to your hearing. Now here's a subject that'll resonate with many of us. Eddie Mayer from radio station LBC writes, On Friday the 6th of December, the annual Lou of the Year Awards will be held. The venue will be the St John's Hotel in Solihull. I hope for the hotel's sake the facilities are sparkling. It's laudable that these awards encourage high standards in WCs, but at my time of life I find the best loo of all is the nearest one. This fact has come into sharp relief when I'm at work. The LBC studio where I sit and talk for two hours a day is mercifully close to a well-appointed loo, but ever since I arrived a year ago it has caused more rows than Brexit, religion and Nigel Farage's cologne combined. The problem is that while I and my small but perfectly formed production team regard the loo as ours, it sits on something of a thoroughfare, popular with hundreds of people who work in our building. While they walk into our loo on a whim, our comfort breaks have to be timed exclusively to commercial breaks. As you can imagine, it's frowned upon to announce to listeners across the United Kingdom, I'll be back in a minute. Possibly too. Talk amongst yourselves. There was at one time I managed to get to the loo and back while Jacob Rees Mogg was on the phone answering a question. But not everyone is as delightfully loquacious. Time and again we would dash to the loo in the few moments afforded to us only to find it occupied. We'd run back to the studio and await the next ad break only to be foiled again. I began to search online for adult nappies. LBC stands for Leading Britain's Conversation, and we love to report on leaks. But at these moments of cross-legged desperation, it felt like laboratory-busy crisis. Suddenly, a few weeks ago, word went round that a security panel had been attached to the loo door. A five-digit code would be required to gain access. At last exclusivity. But who would get to know the code? Some disappointed colleagues were told it was on a need-to-know basis, not a need-to-go basis. Like a pin number, nuclear codes, or the ending to the mousetrap, we were told not to write it down, share it with anybody, discuss or otherwise disseminate the access code. Anyone found breaching the rules would be forced to attend a seven-hour seminar on security, 
in a locked room with no toilet access. The system probably works fine for most people, but twice now I have hurdled out of the LBC studio, sashayed to the loo door and found myself staring at the security buttons, unable to recall a single digit of the code. I'm sure I'm not alone. So if you ever see a video clip of an LBC presenter apparently red-faced and angry, they're not. They've just forgotten the loo break code. Here's JP to test our knowledge of some of the calls of nature. The idea for this little quiz was given to me by my cat, Stumpy, who is currently sitting on my lap. He didn't actually speak to me, you understand, but he made me think of all the different voices that the animal kingdom has to offer. So I'm going to play you the sounds of various animals from around the world, and you can try to identify them. Some are easy, and some aren't. We'll start with an easy one. Well, I did say it was easy. This one's more difficult. That was a kangaroo. There's a lovely story that when Captain Cook landed in Australia, he came across these creatures hopping about, and he asked a local Aborigine, what's that? And he also came back, kangaroo, which means apparently, I don't know. Well, I've since been told that that story is apocryphal, which I think is a bit of a shame. Here's another slightly exotic creature. That was a hyena. Laughing hyena. Something a little larger now. That was the call of a whale. A whale. You could hear its blowhole at the end of that. This, this next one is a little smaller than a whale and a good deal drier. In fact, it wasn't just one creature, but several of these creatures. Ants. Creepy. Another insect. What's this one? This is easy. That was a bee. Something else that flies? What's this? Yes, it's a bird. But what sort of bird? Featured in lots of nursery rhymes and superstitions, it has a questionable reputation. It's a magpie. This one's not a bird. You might think that's a donkey, but it's not a donkey. It's a lot 
It's more than a donkey. Arguably cuddlier, though I've never cuddled a donkey. I've never cuddled a koala bear, either. But that's what it was. <coughs> so if that was a koala bear, what's this? Yeah, that actually was a donkey. Okay, another beast of burden. That was the ship of the desert. A camel. And to finish up with something my cat's very familiar with. What did you think of that, Stumpy? Stumpy? Huh. He's run away. I liked the whales. I wonder what a sardine sounds like. Sue has an article from Waitrose about sardines, but I don't think it tells us about what to talk about in quiet moments. Do they, Sue? I don't think so. As the lights of Penzance twinkle along the shoreline in the gathering dark, fisherman Peter Bullock steers his boat, Vesta, out into Mounts Bay. His eyes flit between his sonar screen and the flat sea ahead, while several other boats chug past, silhouetted against St Michael's Mount as they scan the waters in search of their quarry. Sardines. My job isn't really that different to the old days, Peter says, sipping tea from a chipped mug, one hand on the boat's wheel. We've got a few gizmos to help us now, GPS and so on, but essentially it's the same game as a century ago. Locate the fish, shoot your net, get them into the boat and back to harbour quick as you can. And just like then, the trickiest part isn't actually catching them, it's finding them in the first place. A few minutes later, he spots something. A dark red shape appears on the sonar and Peter shouts to his deckhand, Ian Haggis. Suddenly, the deck of Vesta is alive with action. The net is shot, floats whizzing out over the transom as Peter steers the boat in a wide circle before letting the winch take up the slack. Slowly, the net draws tight and a sheen of bubbles appears on the water's surface, soon followed by the prize, a shimmering, roiling mass of sardines. Decent catch, that is, Peter says, watching his crew haul the fish onto the Vesta's deck and into the ice water tanks. A good five ton, I reckon. One more like that and we'll be done for the evening. Sardine fishing has been part of life in this area for hundreds of years. During the 18th and 19th century, it was almost as important to the local economy as tin mining. Vast shoals of sardines, or pilchards as they were known, were a common sight up and down the coast. Entire communities relied on the fish for their livelihood, sorting and drying them for export across the continent. But after peaking in the 1920s, the industry entered decades of decline, 
exacerbated by overfishing, competition from rival fisheries and the increasing availability of canned and frozen fish. By the 1970s, it had dwindled almost to nothing. In the early 1990s, Martin Ellis, a skipper based in Cadgwith on the Lizard Peninsula, determined to start fishing sardines commercially again. Rather than using traditional drift nets, he decided to maximise each catch by using ring nets, more commonly employed to fish herring and mackerel in Scotland. Having effectively been unfished for decades, Cornwall's sardine stocks were in plentiful supply and soon supermarkets, fishmongers and chefs were clamouring for them. Spin the clock forward 25 years and the industry is in robust health. There are now 13 sardine boats operating across the southwest, eight in Newlyn, three in Mevagissi and two in Plymouth, collectively exporting to a market that stretches right across the EU. All too often, the story around UK fishing is one of doom and gloom, explains Gus Caslake, a regional account manager for Seafish, which supports the UK's seafood industry. But Cornish sardines are a good news story. Stocks are thriving thanks to monitoring and management, and everyone in the fleet is committed to protecting this resource for future generations. Forget Codden Haddock, we should all be eating more sardines. Sardines grow quickly, reaching maturity in around two years. The main season runs from July to March. In winter, as water temperatures cool, they cluster together in shoals and prefer to stay in shallow inlets and bays. Consequently, most Cornish sardines are caught within a mile or two offshore by small boats rather than large factory trawlers. It's a model of low-impact, sustainable fishing. Each boat is capable of taking a maximum of 30 tonnes of fish per night. Compared to a pelagic trawler's potential haul of a 1,000 tonnes or more. Impressively, the majority of Cornish sardines are on their way to the customer within a few hours of being caught. The fishermen have formed their own steering group, the Cornish Sardine Management Association, to ensure best practice across the industry. Their strategy is clearly working. The Marine Stewardship Council has given Cornish sardines its coveted blue label, making them one of the UK's most sustainable fish. The only other English-caught fish to receive the label is Cornish hake. Sustainability is everything for us, Peter says, his overalls glinting with silvery fish scales. Of course we all need to make a living, but we're only scratching the surface in terms of the stock. Our main concern is to make sure there's a future for this industry. Across the bay, on the deck of Resolute, James Roberts and his crew have just completed their second haul of the night. It's another decent catch, three tonnes, bringing them to their target of ten. As the fish disappear into the hold, James brews tea on a battered old camp stove 
and the first sliver of sunrise pinks the horizon, lighting up the craggy shape of St Michael's Mount. Fishing's in my blood, I guess, he says, steering his boat into Newlyn's granite walled harbour. Now in his early thirties, James is one of the fleet's youngest skippers, but he's already been fishing for more than a decade. My great-granddad was a sardine fisherman. Sorry, pilchard fisherman, he'll tell me off for saying that. I got hooked on it aged eight or nine when my cousin took me out. For me, there's something about being out on the water, in the elements, being involved in this tradition that's been part of Cornwall for so long. He looks up at Newlyn's old fish market, fresh from its recent revamp, and the warren of fishermen's cottages clustered over the steep hillside beyond. Here in Newlyn, fishing is more than just a job, he says. It's a way of life. That was fishing on an industrial scale rather than for pleasure, but fishing as a hobby can be a great way to relax. Staring for hours at a float bobbing up and down in a river should be a yoga exercise. Jim has some tips for creative idleness. Sit still. It's a phrase used so often by parents and teachers and will likely transport you back to those childhood moments when you were encouraged to stop fidgeting or wriggling. Indeed, for a child, being still is a challenge. As adults, being physically still is relatively easy. Instead, it is the quality of mental stillness that can be difficult to achieve. Life's frenetic pace means that a moment of complete stillness is hard to create and is made harder by our always-on devices. Stimulation is important for mental well-being, but exposing yourself to too much can lead to cognitive fatigue. Pico Iyer, author of The Art of Stillness, Adventures in Going Nowhere, calls this constant flux between craving stimulation and stillness the counterintuitive truth. The more ways we have to connect, the more many of us seem to be desperate to unplug, he has observed. Look at what happens to our brains when we're stimulated and it's little wonder that we find ourselves craving stillness and peace from time to time. If we are always moving and doing, the nervous system, specifically the sympathetic nervous system, is working overtime. This system triggers the fight-or-flight response. When the brain senses danger or feels challenged, it prompts the body to produce the stress hormone cortisol. Our bodies are then on high alert, ready to take action. The parasympathetic nervous system, which is involved with calming the body, isn't activated at this point. The system, which is sometimes referred to as the rest and digest system, helps to lower our stress hormone levels after the danger has passed. In other words, stimulating our sympathetic nervous system without giving our parasympathetic system a chance to intervene and calm us can lead to increased and prolonged levels of stress. Pico Iyer experienced the effect of overstimulation himself. So at 29, he left his dream life as a successful, well-travelled writer covering world affairs for a simple room in Kyoto, Japan. There, in contemplation, he began reliving memories and processing learning from his experiences. 
He later reflected, sitting still is how most of us can get what we most need in our accelerated lives, a break. As Pico discovered, without downtime, we start to live on autopilot, never digesting what life has delivered to our doorstep. Eastern philosophies and practices, such as Buddhism and meditation, reflect the idea of doing nothing or being still can be good for us and mindfulness is recommended by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence as an aid to improving mental health, particularly depression. It can help us resist distractions and to be more present and aware of our feelings in the moment. Downtime is a subject Dr Sandy Mann has dedicated more than 20 years of research to. A lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire and author of The Science of Boredom, The Upside and Downside of Downtime, she focuses on positive boredom, the idea that in slowing down, we make room to be more creative, to reflect on our lives and acknowledge our feelings. Conversely, negative boredom describes feeling trapped in a tedious situation beyond our control. The definition of boredom can be the neural search for stimulation, says Dr. Sandy. If we don't find the stimulation we seek, we can feel frustrated, a negative reaction. To demonstrate positive boredom, she led a study in which participants were left in a sensory-deprived room with nothing to look at or listen to. Some could only stand it for a few minutes before leaving the room. Amongst those who stayed, there was a sense that, although they felt agitated at first, when they found a way to let go and be with their thoughts, they began to daydream, which led to it being a positive experience. If we can embrace boredom and allow our minds to wander and daydream, we can cultivate our creativity. Removing the distraction of technology is a part of achieving this state. Dr Sandy started a digital detox campaign, issuing wristbands to students that reminded them to take time off from their devices, ideally one day a week. You can't daydream if your phone is about to bleep at you. We're constantly scrolling and swiping boredom away. It's as if we've become afraid to just be. So next time you find yourself simply staring at your device, look up and gaze out of the train or bus window instead. Enjoy doing nothing in the knowledge that it's doing you good. Yeah, so how does everybody here, how do you relax? I like painting. I attempt to do watercolour painting. And it is the most relaxing thing I do, which I don't do many relaxing things. But no matter how tired you are or how stressed you are, when you're there and you're looking at a blank sheet of paper and you know what you want to put down, but attempting to put it down is very relaxing because two hours just fly by. And before you know it, it's time to pack up. And you cannot believe where the time has gone. Um, I can't paint, but for many years I've practised yoga um, and I find it a wonderful way to relax. Um, you can do it in a lesson and you go through the exercises which you're concentrating on um, and it involves your breathing um, and 
slowing everything down and thinking of nothing else but what you're doing. There's no competition. It's just how you feel and how you are on the day. And at the end, most um, yoga classes, you have a relaxation of sort of five or ten minutes that your teacher talks you through. Um, and you come out feeling wonderfully refreshed. Um, and I find that if I'm very stressed or if I'm in a situation that I'm nervous about, that if I do the breathing exercises from yoga, um, I find that really, really relaxing. Excellent. Really helpful. Great, yeah. The, um, the only thing that comes to mind uh, as far as I'm concerned is that I find the one thing that always works with me and I don't think most people even realise to use it is sleeping. I just go to sleep and I find that relaxes me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very nice. Okay. Well, carrying on. I don't know what Melissa Kite from The Spectator does to relax, but she can get a bit hot under the collar about real life. Jenny has a story about it. According to the letter from the NHS, I have been summoned to a calf stretching education group. It has come to the attention of my local hospital that I have tight calf muscles. We would like to invite you to the calf stretching education group in order to give you the opportunity to manage your condition better. My condition is still a little unclear to me, but it has something to do with a lump on the side of my toe. I went to see a specialist about a bunion and she deduced that I am standing on my feet incorrectly. It is uniquely depressing to learn that you don't know how to stand on your own two feet after nearly half a century. But I suppose that as I do struggle to stand on my own two feet, metaphorically, it should not be too surprising to discover that I'm making a pig's ear out of standing on my feet in actuality. I'm collapsing into my arches, which has resulted in a bunion that is inoperable. I thought they could just saw a chunk off my foot, but the toe needs to be swizzled back round. I'm already sleeping in a funny little toe brace I bought on the internet from China, saving the taxpayer from providing it at least, which makes me feel like my big toe is falling off by morning. But the specialist said I also need to do calf stretching exercises every three hours for a month. Every three hours I have to stand on a slanted block that I'm too embarrassed to ask the hospital for, so have ordered one on Amazon for £20 plus P&P. &P. She suggested I put it by the ironing board or in the shower, but of course this presupposes that A, I do any ironing, which I don't, and B, I'm capable of standing on a block in a shower cubicle and not embroiling myself in a calamity resulting in a much worse injury than a wonky toe. While I was zoning in and out of her explanation, the specialist said something about me having to learn how to stand at a special class held at the hospital, which I blocked out almost entirely because it was too absurd. But a few days later, this letter arrived from the NHS, informing me that I was being summoned to the calf stretching education group in order to give me the opportunity to manage my condition. I love new opportunities, as you know, especially when they're overly bureaucratic and managed by the state. I am informed the session will last approximately one and a half hours, but I am to allow additional time for parking and questions. 
Following the session, I will be offered an open appointment for three months. I don't know what this means, but I assume that they're going to be keeping an eye on my calf-stretching efforts to make sure that I don't bunk off. I am regaled with the usual patient information forms, including the ethnic data question, where they have rather presumptuously filled me in already as white British. How very dare they! I mean, I am white British, technically, but still, I might want to choose another option. For example, I'm always tempted by white, any other, white background. I also like the sound of mixed, any other mixed background, and the last one, any other ethnic group. A girl can tire of being white British, you know. It's been going on for nearly 47 years now, and I don't see how much longer I can put up with it. Besides, according to the form, ethnic group describes how you see yourself. I see myself as Anglo-Italian moon child horse spirit, which I'm guessing is other. But I can't tick an other box this time as they've done it for me. I digress. The letter continues in a most forbidding tone to lay down the ground rules of the calf stretching education group, which it keeps writing in capitals, quite as though it is shouting at me about my stiff, belligerent calves. You will learn how to perform calf stretches and will be able to start an exercise program to improve your symptoms following the session. There will be no discussion of personal details or individual problems in this session. All right, all right, I won't dream of inflicting my pathetic personal problems on you. Please wear appropriate clothing, shorts, tracksuit bottoms. Really? You're inviting people of varying ethnicities and other to come to a hospital in November dressed in shorts? Please note that if you do not attend, you will be discharged from physiotherapy. I'm sure they mean well. And maybe the judiciary of Worcester Assizes meant well, although this was probably of little comfort to a young farm worker who appeared before them back in 1831, as Mike Price writes in the Worcester News. Sue. It was a sentence that would cause mass protests in the streets today, but back in the 1830s barely raised an eyebrow. For when 17 years old, Tommy Slaughter was convicted at Worcester Assizes, he was condemned to death. His crime? Setting fire to a hayrick on his employer's farm at Hampton Lovett near Droitwich. When the trap door opened and his body dangled at the end of the hangman's rope on the morning of Friday, March 25th, 1831, Tommy became the youngest man to be executed in the 108-year history of Worcester County Jail. While the harshness of the sentence did shock a few, even then, hardly anyone turned a hair at the age of the condemned man, who, according to a book due to be published at the end of the year, would have been viewed as positively adult by some of the prison's even younger inmates. In fact, the youngest to be condemned to death at Worcester was John Hauling for burglary in 1801. He was aged just 11. But he was lucky. His sentence was commuted to transportation to the colonies 
probably never to see England again. Ten years on from Slaughter's execution, records show the jail in Castle Street held no fewer than 46 children aged 15 and younger, while even eight-year-olds were locked up with the hardened criminals awaiting their trials at the Guild Hall or Shire Hall. One such was Worcester's William Osborne, charged with setting fire to two hayricks and a stack of beans at Aswood in the parish of Clanes, which would be near today's crematorium. He'd already spent several weeks in the jail, a terrifying prospect for an eight-year-old, during which officials, including Surgeon John Woodward and Governor Ben Stable, decided he had the capacity to distinguish between right and wrong and was therefore fully aware of what he was doing. Accordingly, the judge sentenced the boy to two years' hard labour. Forty years later, in marginally more enlightened times, when another eight-year-old, William Young, was charged with a similar crime at Mathon near Malvern, he was judged not guilty on account of his age and discharged, although he had already spent several weeks behind bars. At least in 1896, Worcester's youngest ever killer, Cyril Blunt, was spared the horrors of a jail sentence. The toddler was aged only three years and five months when he attacked Indian driver's daughter Florence Clark with an axe outside her home at 12 Southfield Street, Worcester. The blows rendered little Florence, who was a few weeks younger than Cyril, blind and unconscious, a state she remained in for six weeks before dying. Worcester County Jail, which is now the site of the City University's Art House, closed in 1922 and left a legacy of dealing with youth crime. It housed another 11-year-old, who had been due to hang. Thomas Cope was convicted of housebreaking and theft at King's Norton, but like John Hauling, his sentence was commuted. Among the 12-year-olds behind its bars was nursemaid Fanny Brown, who had been found guilty of feloniously and with malice aforethought killing Anne Hickton, aged 18 months. The baby was discovered drowned in a six-foot-deep cistern at Halzoin. Then there was Thomas Jones, jailed for housebreaking at Stock and Bradley near Droitwich. His hall had been a few clothes, an umbrella and some cheese. Hannah Holdman was sentenced to one month's imprisonment for stealing a gown from Webb's store at Dudley, while William Humphreys a very little fellow for his age, according to press reports, had been sentenced to six months' custody for stabbing and wounding George Hopcott with intent at the Dudley coal pit where they worked. Another 11-year-old, Charles Wilkins, was ordered to be returned to his cell and held there for three more days for his part in the Mathon riots in 1846. Among the 13-year-olds who found themselves in the Worcester prison were George Tweedy for an unnatural crime with a horse at Tardy. 
near Bromsgrove, <laughs> and Joey Need for placing a bar of wood on the railway line at Pershaw. Joey spent several weeks in jail and was then committed for a further month and afterwards confined in a reformatory for five years. William Winwood, who was 14, was jailed for the willful murder of his mistress at Bromsgrove by adding a quantity of arsenic to her breakfast gruel, while another lad of the same age, John Pardo, got two months jail and was privately whipped for stealing lead. James Walters, also 14, received 14 years transportation for stealing a pair of child's shoes from a house in Dolde, Worcester, which he later sold for ninepence. It was his third offence. Abel Phillips, again 14, got six months jail for having feloniously stabbed William Wilson with intent at Ombersley. And finally, another 14-year-old, George Dallow, received three months hard labour and 15 strokes of the rod for throwing stones at the newfangled phenomenon that was the steam train at Worcester. What youngsters would have got then for doing bicycle wheelies down Worcester High Street is anyone's guess. Kids. A story this month concerns a couple of tykes thrown together during the Blitz, causing no end of trouble. Pauline Bale reads Brown and Green by local author Terry Baldock. She'd lost her label, and nobody would know who she was. Her small brown suitcase, scuffed shoes, long grey socks, dark blue coat, and a beret covering her wispy blonde hair, a small box on a string hanging from her neck. A lonely little girl. It wasn't a big town, and soon she found herself back at the station. It looked deserted. She sat down on the waiting room steps, blinking back the tears. She was alone in a strange place. The waiting room door opened and a man in uniform stared down at her. Did you get off the London train? he asked in a strange accent. She nodded. Then you must be the lost girl. Is this yours? He held up a luggage label that said, Dillis Green. Age 10, Braxford, Mrs Brown. The girl stood up and nodded again, her tears now flowing. Her small suitcase clutched in her hand. Yes, I, I'm Dillis. I lost me label. I know, he said. You're staying with the Browns. They'll be here soon. And the sound of a horse and cart came up the darkened high street. But we found her, he shouted, and the cart came to a halt. A small boy dropped down from the cart and walked towards the girl, eyeing her as if she were an alien. Get up on the cart, he ordered. The girl, still crying, picked up her little case and walked slowly towards the conveyance. I'm Dillis, she sobbed. Dillis Green. 
I'm Bert Brown. This is my son, Will. You're to stay with us. You'll be safe," the driver said. "What's safe?" the little girl whispered. "Come on," the unfriendly boy ordered. "It's getting dark. No lights here, you know. Not like back in London." "It's a blackout in London," Jillis shouted. "And why are you so rude?" She climbed onto the hay. "Because you got my bed." The boy grumbled. The man whistled to the horse, and the cart turned back the way it had come. It was dark when they approached an old farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. The air smelt of something that Dillis couldn't recognise: no dust, no fumes, no smoke, and there was no sound other than the clopping of the horse and the cart wheels on the road. A lantern in a window. And a waved torch guided them. We found her, the man said, in the direction of the torch. Will help her off, his dad shouted, but the boy walked away. She can get down herself. She got here, didn't she? And he went off in a sulk, a sulk that was to last a long time. Come on, lass, you must be hungry. A woman appeared from the gloom. I'm Queenie Brown. Let me apologise for Will. I'm Dillis Green, and I'm ten. Dillis climbed down into Queenie's embrace. I know, love. Queenie gave the girl a hug. Welcome to Hill Farm. Come on and have some tea. Dillis had never seen anything like the farmhouse. It was warm and welcoming. Unlike the young boy, there was a large wooden table, six matching wooden chairs, and an odd one. The table was laid with the type of food she hadn't seen in years. Would you like to wash your hands? Queenie asked. Maud, show Dillis where she can wash her hands and the toilet. Here, take the torch. Hello, I'm Maud. A ruddy-cheeked girl held out her hand. You've met my brother Will. Tom's just tending to the animals. He's my older brother. Dillis followed Maud. You'll need these, Maud said, pointing at a pair of muddy Wellingtons. There's always mud. I'm worse here. Better than bombs, Dillis whispered. Oh yes, I imagine it is, Maud said, as they squelched across the yard. Don't mind Will. He'll come round. Why's she talking funny? Will shouted across the dinner table. She probably thinks we talk funny as well. Will, Queenie gave Dillis some potatoes. Right, Dillis. Dilly, the girl said as she tucked into her meal. Call me Dilly. Dilly and Willy, Bert laughed. Sounds like a comedy act. Will didn't laugh. I don't think it's funny. Where are you from in London, Dilly? Maud asked. Bethnal, I mean Bethnal Green. Dilly scooped up some more potatoes. Didn't your mum teach you to speak proper? Will taunted. My mum's dead. Dilly stopped eating and began to cry. My dad's fighting. My gran sent me here. 
Will stood up and pushed his chair over. Why do I have to have the odd chair? he shouted. Just you wait till I'm old enough. I'll be off fighting. And he sulked out of the room, slamming the door, and then he crept back in. I forgot. She's got my bed. And he slammed the door out to the yard. I'm sorry. Dillis put her cutlery down, wiping away her tears. I, I never asked to come here. My mum taught me how to speak better. Well, I can't help it. Don't mind him, Bert said as the yard door opened. A tired young man entered. Who's this then? Nodding at Dilly as he took a potato. This is Dilly, Tom. She's to stay with us till things blow over. Probably all be over in a few months. Bert stood to let Tom sit down. That's OK, Dad, Tom said. I need to wash my hands. You said that last year, but it's still going on. Wish I could fight, but they need me to grow food. He looked at Dilly. Must be bad in London, eh? Dillis nodded. Well, it's nice to meet you, Dilly. Don't worry about Will. Spring came, and then the summer. Dillis worked on the farm, went to the local school and church. Will was always playing tricks on her, but she began to understand him, and while they found it hard to be friends, she tried. There were disagreements, but Will began to respect her East London ways. In the early days, they couldn't be left in the same room or even a field together without something happening. Breakages, escaped animals, and then they set fire to a haystack as Will tried to show off with a magnifying glass. Will Brown and Dillis Green, the local policeman said. Brown and Green. You know what? He smiled. What do you get if you mix Brown and Green together? Uh, yellow, Will said. Purple, Dilly suggested. No, the policeman laughed. If you mix brown and green together, you get trouble. Now off you go, and I don't want to see you again. But he did. Too many times. The two of them bounced off each other, literally sometimes, and wherever there was trouble, brown and green were blamed. It was nearly a year after Dilly had arrived when a message came that said her gran wanted her back as things were quieter in London. Bet you'll be pleased to see her go, Queenie said, as Will slouched around the farmhouse. Course I will, he said a little too firmly. I'll get my bed back. Are you ready to go yet? Bert shouted from the cart. We'll miss the train. Here I am, Mr Brown and Dillis appeared, dressed in the same clothes she'd arrived in, although the sleeve seemed a lot shorter. Bit different from Maud's borrowed clothes, Bert said as he lifted her onto the cart. You've grown, lass. You come in, Will. What would I want to come for? Will asked. Please, Will. Please, 
Dillis said. Bert winked at Queenie and Maud, who were waiting at the door. Say goodbye to Tom for me. I hope he'll be safe when he joins up. What safe? Will muttered as he climbed onto the cart, and they set off. There were a few people at the station when they arrived, some happily waiting for someone, and others sadly saying goodbye. Thanks for everything, Dillis said, and hugged Bert. Now, now, Bert said as he let go of the girl, don't get all sentimental with me. Will, say goodbye. Goodbye, Dilly, Will said, standing by the cart. Goodbye, Will. And Dillis put her case down and ran to Will, gave him a kiss on the cheek, then went to the platform as the train came in. Bye, she waved from a window as the engine moved off. Will and Bert climbed on the cart. It'll be strange without her, Will. Bet you're glad to see the back of her. He looked at his son, who was unusually quiet. Do you think it's safe in London, Dad? he asked. They say it is. She'll be okay, and you can have your own bed again. Will was quiet for a moment and then said, I don't think I want it back. It's too small. I've grown. I'll stay in the barn. And he brushed his eye as Bert said the horse moving. Fly in the eye, Will? What? Oh, yes, Dad, a, a fly. Bert thought that it was a bit unusual for flies at that time of the year, but then it was an unusual world. The young woman was rushing for her train when a young man accidentally sent her flying, crashing into an elderly traveller waiting at Waterloo Station. I'm so sorry, the man apologised. You oaf, the older man said, as he picked himself and the young lady up. But the young man just stood where he was. Dilly, he said. Is that you? Will, it's you, isn't it? And hesitantly, she hugged him. Well, I don't know, the elderly man said. The two ignored him as he walked away. Yes, it's me, Will said, as he stood back and looked at Dilly. Wow, you, you've changed in these ten years. And so have you. She bent down to pick up her case. Sorry, she shouted to the man. You know what, Dilly? That policeman was right. What do you get when you mix brown and green? Trouble, they whispered together. Definitely. Trouble. Well, that just about brings us to the end of this edition, in which I was aided and abetted by Jenny, Bye. Sue, Bye -bye. and Jim. Bye -bye. Admin was by Carol Hartle, and copying by Sylvia and David Day. The producer was John Plush. So for me, Patrick, 
and all of us, it's goodbye till next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.